You're listening to The Spear, a podcast about the combat experience from the Modern War Institute at West Point. More than 100 meters outside the village, you were definitely getting in a firefight. My first patrol I took, we had a far ambush. And then it was just a, a huge explosion. The primary threat was RKG-3 grenades, light machine guns and AK-47s, that kind of thing. Small arms fire, RPG fire. Explosively formed penetrators. Suicide bombs. And then that's about the time that the third IED went off. And that's when another grenade comes spinning over the side of the wall. And it's at that point the IED chain detonates. There was enemy in the wire. There's all these Humvees on fire. It, it was truly bullets flying from every angle that, that you could see. I open the door and look outside, and all I see is muzzle flashes. There's a guy on top with a 240, and the rounds pass right past his head. At that point, our instincts kicked in. One, one pilot on the controls, the other pilot was using his M4 to engage single-man targets on the ground. You're shooting at everything. It was a fight. Welcome back to another episode of The Spear. My guest on this episode is Mike Kelvington. Mike, thanks so much for taking some time out of your schedule and, uh, and joining the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me, John. So you're going to share a story uh, on this episode from Afghanistan, southwestern Afghanistan, uh, around 2012, I believe. Um, but before we kind of get into that, can you give listeners maybe just a little bit about your background in the Army? Uh, so 2005, West Point grad. I've spent pretty pretty much all of my time in airborne and, and ranger units, um, kind of bouncing back and forth. So um, I've spent time uh, up in 425, up in Alaska, uh, where I deployed to Iraq as a, as a lieutenant. And then uh, since then, um, one, 175 um, commanded in the 82nd, which is uh, the time period that we'll be discussing today. And then uh, second Ranger Battalion, spent some time at, at JSOC and then um, the Regimental Special Troops Battalion and, and the uh, 75th Ranger Regiment Headquarters, um, where across the span of that time, I've done uh, 13 deployments to Afghanistan. Okay. And you branched infantry coming out of West Point? Infantry officer. Yep, that's correct. That's what you wanted to do? It was, yeah. yeah. Um, what was it? You know, there's... The, for listeners who don't know, West Point essentially has a quota. Uh, they have to produce, you know, some percentage of of uh, combat arms officers and infantry, armor, uh, artillery, um, and so there is kind of a there's almost a cultural uh, weight given to combat arms branches at mm -hmm. West Point. Um, but still, you get you know the full spectrum of cadets commissioning out of West Point that want to do you know cover all all the branches. What was it that made you want to go infantry? So, two things. Um... I, uh, I almost failed my chemistry T when I was uh, a plebe, when I read the book, uh, Ranger School, No Excuse Leadership, because uh, I couldn't put it down rather than study um, going, going into, into the finals that year. And then uh, the other one was um, I, I had the opportunity to meet Nate Self, and I was a sprint football player at West Point. Uh, he was an offensive team captain a couple years uh, prior to me and, and was the Ranger platoon leader on Roberts Ridge. And between those two things, I think that was really uh, the, the two things as a cadet that really had my mind made up that that is, that is what I wanted to do. I wanted to branch infantry. Uh, I wanted to go to Ranger school and, 
and uh, all I ever wanted to be in the army was a was a platoon leader in the in the ranger regiment. So let me ask you about that because we have you know we've done I don't know dozens and dozens of of combat stories that we've featured on the spear. Um, many, but not all, are combat arms officers. Um, the infantry ones, you kind of have two routes. You can go kind of straight conventional, or you can uh, follow a career path. It's a little bit more like yours. It bounces back and forth between conventional units and um, ranger special operations units. What made you uh, pursue that path in particular? I, I think it was the the leaders and the and the mentors that I had been exposed to, both, both as a cadet and then early in my career. Uh, you know, people like Nate Self, um, TAC and COs, uh, a number of officers at West Point, and then um, uh, DMI six when I was a cadet, uh, when ended up being my first brigade commander, uh, Colonel now now General Garrett, and uh, leaders like that, and and the career paths that that they pursued. Uh, was something that I wanted to emulate. So the story you're going to share uh, is from a 2012 deployment. Uh, how many deployments had you done before that? So this was my fifth deployment. Um, it was my uh, fourth trip to Afghanistan. Okay. And it was, you were a company commander, as you said, in the 82nd Airborne. Um, was it difficult going back and forth between, um, you know, Granted, in the conventional units you were in, if you're in the 82nd, you're still in a sort of elite unit. Um, but was it difficult going back and forth between, um, you know, air quotes, conventional units and, say, a ranger uh, unit, it, it, maybe culturally? Um, so so I think the, 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 the big thing there is uh, the ranger regiment has what's called an Abrams Charter. And, and part of the purpose of the regiment is to send people back into the Army to spread knowledge uh, and, and share some of the experiences that they've had with the conventional force. I, I would argue that the, 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 the soldiers, the paratroopers that I had, you know, both as a lieutenant, uh, as a PL, and then as a, as a captain, as a commander in the 82nd, you know, the, the, the quality of people, the, there's a difference with the assessment and selection that the Ranger Regiment does. Uh, but but the, the disparity a lot of times is the, the amount of training, uh, the funding and, and the equipment, um, but but the people that I've met and the people that I've served with, their their desire to serve their country and do their jobs is is no different. Um, that 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 inherent uh, selfless service is is something that's a part of of every uh, person and organization that I've I've been a part of since I've been in the military. So when did you take company command? It was August of 2011, and then quickly uh, went to NTC the next month. And uh, end of September, my wife was due with our first kids. So a lot, lot of big changes uh, right after taking a guide on. Yeah. Was that challenging? Um, I, you know, coming, coming straight out of the career course, I think that uh, the, the, the course in, in my experience in, in the 75th, uh, having recently served as a company XO, uh, I, I felt prepared uh, going into uh, that experience, uh, but certainly, you know, lots of lots of challenges learning new personalities. Uh, like you said, a little bit of difference in culture, um, but uh, we had we had a, a decent glide path uh, to prepare for our deployment coming up. You know, the following February. 
So given the, you know, the various things that you were kind of juggling, uh, both professionally and personally from, you know, the time you took command in August, 2011, it was only about six months later that you deployed. Did you feel, um, you know, obviously you had deployed several times before. Um, so you probably felt, you know, in a sense prepared, uh, prepared for that deployment, but specifically with respect to kind of getting to know your company, the soldiers and, um, and, and, you know, your higher headquarters, did you feel prepared? I, I did, uh, I, you know, the, the glide path to deploy was pretty well laid out for us from our battalion and brigade. And, uh, I, I was in first of the 508, um, the, the, the Fury Brigade, 4th Brigade, when it was still around in the 82nd. And uh, it, it was a great unit. And the, the, the people were great. And, you know, the 75th Ranger Regiment, specifically during that time, was not the only experienced unit uh, that, that, you know, had served in, in, the, in the GWAT. And certainly, sure. One Fury was one of those very battle-hardened battalions that had a lot of experience and my company had a wealth of individuals, specifically the non-commissioned officers like my first sergeant who um, had had a lot of experience specifically, you know, not just Afghanistan, but also Iraq. So uh, we, we had the leaders that we needed. Uh, we had the training that we needed and, and I felt pretty well prepared going into that deployment. So where were you going to be going in, in Afghanistan? So we were going to Kandahar province uh, in the southern part of the country. Okay. And did you know specifically where your company was going to be? We, we knew uh, a, a, a couple months ahead of time, the, the general area where we were going and, and the mission that we were going to do. And, um, you know, going back to the, the, the leaders in the preparation, um, we, we, were, we were put into a, an area where uh, you know, people thought that our, our, our skills and talents were best suited. And I had a, I had a battalion and brigade commander who um, I had served with my brigade commander before in first stranger battalion. And so uh, some of the resources that our company specifically was given was unique to uh, the, the, the typical kind of cookie cutter, what a, what a rifle company would get at the time. And so we had some extra enablers that allowed us to do additional things uh, and kind of a lead up to the, the uh, story that we're, we're talking about today. Um, we did out of sector missions because of some of the resources and the mission that we had. Um, and so uh, that, that kind of led us to do some of these outer sector missions, like, uh, like the one on 25 April. What kind of enablers? So we had, we had a small uh, SIGINT team for signals intelligence Oh, wow. that, that we employed, we had a small human element uh, of a couple collectors. Uh, we had uh, what, what, what we call uh, in, in, the, in the soft community, they're called CST, cultural support team. But we had a female engagement team that, that was uh, attached to our company. And then our, uh, our, our company COP, uh, combat outpost that we were supposed to go to, uh, that we ended up, was originally supposed to be a battalion FOB. And so it was a larger cop that had its own HLZ and uh, its own aid station. And so we had a PA and then we had a, a small, you know, kind of platoon sized dining facility uh, defect where we had our own cooks from our uh, Ford support company that, that lived with us as well. Okay. 
And uh, where where in Kandahar province was this? So we were in we were in Zari district, uh, just west of Kandahar city, where uh, Highway One kind of leaves the main urban area of Kandahar and heads west towards Helmand province. And can you kind of describe the terrain? Uh, so it's uh, r- right off of the Argandab River, and so uh, farmland. Uh, it, it was kind of a, a plain area between, uh, you know, uh, two mountain ranges, one to the north and then one to the south. Uh, and so Highway 1 sort of paralleled east-west the, the Argandab River as it, as it kind of had a big bend that went north to south and, and then kicked west uh, towards Helmand. So um, lots of canals, lots of, um, lots of tall grass, lots of uh, farming. Uh, very, very agrarian area with a lot of uh, what we called collats or village clusters. And, uh, and, and so that the, the threat there was very high when it came to IEDs, specifically because of the terrain and the choke points that it created to maneuver around. Sure. So you get into country in February, is that right, of 2012? Yep. Yeah, Jane. Uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, February of uh, 2012. And how quickly did you kind of settle into a battle rhythm? Uh, so, uh, the way the the relief in place, the rip happened at at the COP. Um, probably about two thirds of the company that we uh, we took over for had had started to push out, and so we had kind of like a, a platoon that stayed behind. Um, actually, it was uh, Villanueva, um, you know, the Army football player that's now yeah. playing for the Steelers, and um, you know, Tom, his company commander. Um, and, and so we, um, we had their leadership and about a platoon that, uh, spent the next, I'd say about, I think it was about two, two and a half weeks where, um, most of those guys stayed back. And then we kind of did a left seat, right seat where they would lead patrols. And then eventually we kind of took over the patrols and it was more of them advising over the shoulder. But, um, the, the key point of, of the turnover for me was really in a coin environment you know, understanding all of the, the, the personalities, not just the enemy networks that we were facing, but, you know, the, the village elders, the members of the Shura, um, those who govern, and then, um, also our, our, uh, ANDSF, our, our Afghan national defense security for, uh, forces partners. Uh, we had about a hundred person, uh, ANA Afghan national army company that was living with us inside the wire of our cop. And then outside the wire, we had Afghan National Police, ANP, and then Afghan local police that was kind uh, of still being stood up in the area. So uh, all, all in all, um, by the end of the deployment, as some of the drawdown happened, we, we were responsible. Our company had about 340 Afghans, um, 70 contract Afghans who uh, pulled security uh, at our, at our uh, entry control point, and then the tower guard uh, on our on our cop, and then about 160 U.S. So, all in all, um, the force that we were responsible for as a team was close to about 600 people in the area. Okay. Now you mentioned that um, we're going to talk specifically about uh, a mission that was you described it as an out of sector uh, mission or out of sector operation. Were those functionally different than what you were doing, what your company was doing on a day-to-day basis within your area of operations? They, they were. 
um, I, I would I would describe most of the operations that we did inside of our company area in the town called Sandere, which had about ten thousand people in it in and kind of the surrounding area that was our our company battle space and uh, so I, I would call most of the operations that we did in that area more uh, stability operations you know meeting engagements key leader engagements um, you know m- movements and patrols around the town to check on security uh, talk to the village elders uh, see how governance was going um, work with the provincial reconstruction team on on projects that were being done in the area and, and really coach, teach and mentoring our, our Afghan partners, whether it was the, the army, the police or the local police on uh, things that they were doing and, and trying to push them outside of their checkpoints and be the ones that were really the proponent for uh, responsibility of security in the area versus the out of sector, you know, couple day air assaults, that we were doing that was more focused on clearance operations, contact with the enemy was much more likely. Uh, and it was area that they controlled more than we or our Afghan partners control. Uh, okay. So April 25th um, is the day of the, uh, the event that we're going to talk about. Um, what was the mission that you were given as a company commander? So it was a two day air assault mission it was out of sector for us and it was really out of sector for anybody in the area. It was, it was a little bit further West than where we were. Our, our, uh, our Charlie company had basically a battle space that kind of ended at a canal North of the Argandab river. And so, uh, the area that we were in, it was, it was more, you know, insurgent controlled at the time and, and Taliban controlled. And so coming out of Panjway, uh, you know, interesting um, for those that that listened to Brian Kitching's uh, Spear article, uh, the location that he was in in Panjway, there was a mountain range that that ran east west towards Helmand that Panjway to the south and then Zari, where I was to the north, uh, bordered. And if you button hooked, you know, around to the west where that mountain range ended, it would spit you out into Zari district to the north, just about the area where we were, we were told to clear. And so this was an area that we knew that the Taliban were staging attacks against the checkpoints that we were working with our Afghan partners to, to build. Um, and, and we were pushing out that security specifically from east to west as we were expanding a, a pretty successful security zone with our local police and our Afghan partners and so this was a, a clearance operation to disrupt the enemy activity in the area uh, south of our, our Charlie Company's sector, um, uh, uh, pretty close south to where Fab Pasab was, where our battalion and brigade headquarters was located. And how much of your company was going to take part? So we had, we had two platoons. Uh, one platoon stayed at, at the COP to kind of do the stability operation stuff. Uh, and, and then uh, the company headquarters. And then right about this time, the policy within uh, Afghanistan as far as tactical operations was changing. And so this was right around the time where uh, we were starting to go to 50% of our patrols had to be Afghan pure. 
um, which was a, a change from the first couple months. And, um, you know, as, as we're starting to talk about optimization now in 2020, it's, it's kind of hearkening back to the time that I was there in 2012 because everyone was already focused on the retrograde and drawdown to, you know, kind of quote the cessation of, of combat operations in 2014. You know, because we announced the surge and we also announced the drawdown. So everyone knew that a retrograde was happening. Um, and so, you know, we, we were we were focusing on trying to consolidate as much gains as we possibly could, but do more of having the Afghans take the lead at the time um, and, and trying to, to really force the hand uh, from the senior leadership on down to uh having them assume more ownership of the security, uh, in, uh, across the country. And, you know, kind of the trickle down effect of that was the, the new institution of this, uh, new, new, uh, guidance that we were supposed to have a mix of 50, 50. So, um, we went out with, uh, it was over, uh, over a hundred personnel, um, enablers, we didn't count and, and linguists, we didn't count, but when it came to, you know, kind of trigger pullers, the, the, the infantry personnel that were, in the formation, it was about a half and half mix of Afghans and U.S. that were on the ground that day. So about fifty Americans, fifty Afghans. Yeah, we. Ish. R- yeah, roughly, uh, roughly, I'd say it was probably, um, yeah, with Americans and enablers, we probably had about seventy-five, and they had about fifty. Okay. Um, and and uh, so it was about a, somewhere between 100, 125 people on the on the manifest. And did they? So they air assaulted with you. They did. Yep. We had a, a mix. And so, uh, when we infilled at about three o'clock in the morning and on Chinooks, on Chinooks. Yep. Um, okay. and, and it was in two separate HLZs. So immediately upon infill, um, you know, kind of in an L shape, we, we, uh, we infilled into the area, um, with a, a mix of us and Afghans on, on both sides. So what time you said it was about three 30 in the morning. It was about yeah three three thirty in the morning, um, and and uh, you know when when you look at the threat in the area, I think one thing that's interesting to to kind of tease out on this one, John, is is um, you know when 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 we talk the difference right now as we're making kind of this transition from counterinsurgency and counterterrorism, um, and and this kind of doctrinal shift to multi-domain operations and large-scale combat operations, um, we, we will start having, I think, more conversations about operations like this in the sense that when we went in that day, we knew that we were going into what I called a fair fight. And it was not something that I, I felt like I had ever done before in the four deployments before this. Uh, or, or this specific deploy, deployment leading up to it. And that's something that, um, you know, anybody who's been in the, in the army for almost the past 20 years, that's, you, we always hear that phrase. Um, we don't ever want to be in a fair fight. It means we want to bring our technological advantages, our various enablers, like you had some of, uh, to bear so that we have, you know, air superiority, ISR, um, surveillance, intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance, um, all of those things to give our side advantages that, you know, that, that the other side can't, uh, can't match. But what, what specifically did you, did you mean in terms of thinking that felt like a fair fight? So, you know, to be fair, that would argue that it's not 
truly a fair fight. I mean, we, we still, you know, absolutely had air superiority. Um, but in a conventional unit, we were also very limited to uh, the air assets that we had available to us aside from, uh, you know, uh, close combat attack or, or um, we, we had uh, what we called pink teams at the time. So it was a, a, a Kiowa and an Apache that were only really coming on station uh, a couple hours at a time. Um, and, and aside from, you know, a shadow, uh, we didn't, we didn't really have, um, you know, intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance assets, uh, that, that, that I was used to having going out on, you know, larger operations like this, uh, in previous deployments. But, uh, you know, we had, we had, um, mortars, but we were pretty restricted based on the rules of engagement at the time, um, for, for uh, operations specifically to be able to you know, employ them in, in a, in a built up area. Uh, they had recoilless rifles. We had a Carl Gustav. They had PKMs. We had two forties. Uh, we had M4s. They had AK 47s. And so uh, when it came to the matchup of firepower and um, tactics, uh, you know, we, we had mine detectors, they had IEDs. And, and I think arguably you could even say that it wasn't even a fair fight because, uh, they owned the terrain. It was their home turf and it was an area that we hadn't been to. And and not to say that Americans weren't there before. In fact, um, you know, I, I, I was familiar with the area. I had done raids there a couple years ago. In fact, um, I had dealt with a Moscow. Uh, mass casualty situation in um, 30, 30 September to 1 October on a raid where we actually lost a team leader uh, in, in, the, the, in the Ranger Battalion I was in and, and had uh, multiple injuries, uh, traumatic vein injury and, a, and an amputee from an incident that when we landed that morning was only four kilometers away. Uh, you know, and so here I am a uh, little, little under three years later uh, infilling to the same area. I know the threat. I'm familiar with it. Um, but I, I'd never in my career up to that point gone into a mission where, um, not only did I, uh, you know, not only was I concerned about the threat, but I, I had a, I had a reasonable feeling in my gut that we were going to take casualties that day. So what happened uh, when you when you land, uh, you get off the aircraft, uh, what's your kind of first move? So w- when we, we infilled, the, the third platoon was supposed to move forward and establish an overwatch position, support by fire position, for us to clear the first little village cluster. And so we were supposed to have uh, a, a clearance where we were going to clear a couple village clusters on the first day, find a place to remain overnight and then clear a couple more village clusters the, the next day. And we were looking to, you know, make contact with the enemy, uh, try to find enemy caches and, and really land kind of south of the IED belt that was kind of plaguing uh, Charlie company and the other f- folks that, that were working that sector um, to include five uh, twentieth and, and some, some units both to uh, the north, uh, the south, and then the west uh, of, of that area. And, um, and, and so, you know, going into it, um, 
we, we weren't sure what we were going to uh, encounter when, when it came to the enemy. Um, but as we moved up that morning, uh, we knew the IED threat was high. And, and so as third, third platoon was working to uh, clear to get into areas where they're establishing an overwatch, uh, right around the, sun, the time the sun was coming up, um, we had an Afghan who, uh, as, as he was walking across a path, um, based on the guys in third platoon, they kind of watched this play out, likely stepped outside of the path of the cleared area that the guy with the mine detector had cleared and, and stepped on an IED. And as a result of that IED, uh, we had uh, our first of two mass casualties, mass cal situations that morning. Um, this one was with third platoon and uh, it instantly killed a team leader. Uh, of ours, uh, wounded another one of our, our soldiers. So, so, um, uh, Corporal Ben Neal was, was killed instantly. Uh, Specialist Sam Watts, one of our saw gunners, uh, was, was wounded and later succumbed to his wounds, uh, on, on March 19th, about, uh, almost a month later. Uh, and then, you know, we had a number of other people who were injured. It, it killed two Afghans, uh, the one that stepped on the ID and another one that was nearby. And, uh, and, and the blast, uh, of, of that IED, um, you know, messed up a number of other soldiers, whether it was shrapnel or fragments, uh, dirt, or just the, the pure overpressure, uh, from the blast. So it was a pretty good sized IED. Yeah, it was, it was pretty big. So then what next? So, um, well, we had to deal with the casualties as, as, uh, I was with the first platoon, uh, moving up, uh, third platoon had, uh, just some pretty strong leaders in it. So, um, because first platoon was doing the clearance that morning, uh, myself and the first sergeant were actually both with that element. And so we had to take a tactical pause there and allow third platoon to deal with the mass cow situation and getting the casualties out. And, uh, we, we did not take contact, uh, during the evacuation. Um, but you know, it, it's, it's a mixed bag, uh, when, when people are faced with uncertainty and threat and, um, we actually had a number of Afghans quit on us. And so as the, as the, because we couldn't fit everybody on one aircraft, we had to cycle in, uh, medevac birds numerous times, uh, to get the casualties out, um, both, both the, uh, the KIA and then, and then the, the wounded, um, we had, we had Afghans, uh, quit and actually jump on the aircraft as it was landing so that they could get out of the situation. Um, and so that was, a, um, you know, not, not just the event itself, but kind of a morale killer overall was you, you not only had a large number of casualties that ended up leaving the battlefield that were supposed to be a part of this mission, but you had partners who were quitting getting on the aircraft. How did you react to that? Uh, so, I mean, there's not much of a reaction other than, you know, the mission continues. And so once once third platoon recovered from the casualty event and was able to set up the overwatch, we then moved up to, uh, initiate the breach. And so moving into that, uh, small area, um, 
it was it was largely unoccupied. We knew that going in, um, and and so to to you know move into the area, we we went to do uh, a, a wall breach on a uh, on a um, you know evacuated compound. And uh, as we as we uh, did the wall breach and and uh, open up the breach to move in to do the first clearance of the. Uh, uh, of the compound, we, we actually ended up having, uh, the Afghans on the assault element now, uh, refuse to go in. They, uh, they did not want to be the first ones to clear. And at that point with, uh, you know, the, 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 the general guidance at the time was not only were the Afghans supposed to be, you know, occupying 50% of the manifest, but they were also supposed to be doing a large amount of the heavy lifting when it came to, conducting the operations. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we, we ended up having to take the lead at that point and guys from our first platoon moved into the compound and they started doing a clearance. And as you've probably heard in many stories, uh, that, that, that you've heard about, uh, Iraq and Afghanistan, you know, we spent the, the greater part of those two days that we were out, uh, chasing ghosts in the sense that, there was no one in the village cluster that we were in. It was it was us playing minesweeper, um, and 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 going through and trying to find the caches that we suspected were there, and uh, you know trying to clear out any enemy that was in the area. I think the entire first day that we were there, uh, I saw no other human beings, uh, either combatants or civilians, um, whether it be children, women, uh, adult males. Um, I think we saw two cats the the entire day. Why um, was that? Do you think? I mean, are they just that quick to react when they when they see the hel- or hear the helicopters coming in, or were they had had it was it empty already? So I think with the level of opsec that we had in the area, and you know, it was it was no secret to any of us that. You know, there, there were people in the area that were playing both sides, whether it was the local uh, elders that were tied to the Taliban and had affiliations with the Taliban. Um, you know, we, we ended up losing a third paratrooper uh, during that rotation to a green on blue incident that, uh, uh, you know, an individual of the Afghan police had, had flipped. And so we, we knew that um, there, there was... A, a number of folks that were, you know, kind of playing the fence. So it, it would not have surprised me if, um, in addition to just the helicopters coming in at three in the morning and then kind of people making their getaway that, uh, you know, some folks in the area may have been tipped off to our presence prior to infill. Did you have any other, you said you didn't see anybody combatant or non-combatant. Did you have any other, uh, engagement, uh, you know, in terms of IEDs? So, so as, as the first platoon then assumed responsibility for the clearance, uh, the, the second compound that we cleared or moved up to clear, uh, we were in an alleyway and uh, guys in the lead squad went up to the doorway to start clearing and they, they found what we call a houseborne IED. Uh, the, the entire structure was rigged to blow. And I mean, um, you know, I, I, I had seen houseborne IDs before. Um, I, I went up to the alleyway, uh, to, to talk to the squad leader that was up there 
and to, to confirm that, uh, you know, what, what they were seeing was, was in fact, um, you know, what we thought it was. We already had guys on the rooftop uh, of that compound pulling overwatch for the clearance. And so we immediately had to get those guys down off the roof and, and kind of start working um, some standoff between us and that structure. And as we were working for a solution to potentially reduce that houseborn IED, um, our EOD tech had found uh, a, a bag of, um, they call it a, a, um, aluminum powder. It's a, it's a form of uh, fertilizer, but it's very explosive and, and is used for, um, homemade IEDs, uh, w- with, uh, with, um, you know, usually the yellow jugs of cooking oil that they would put them in and then bury them in the ground, mostly yeah. as pressure plates in that area. Okay. And uh, so he moved the bag. I had walked up and down the alleyway a couple times to talk to the platoon leader about establishing security and working standoff. Um, had, had walked past that area. And uh, I moved in to make a radio call in the first compound that we cleared, the one that the Afghans refused to clear. And as I was making a radio call, I heard another loud explosion, similar to the first one, but closer than um, third platoon. And when I stepped back out into the alleyway, the the platoon leader had actually stepped on uh, a pressure plate um, and and actually had one of his legs amputated. And uh, so we had another mass casualty situation because... Uh, you know, the, the, the overpressure and the blast that happened in the alleyway affected a number of our guys. And so we were then, uh, you know, guys had gotten sprayed in the face and, and, uh, some of them had their, their eardrums blown out and, and, um, and some of them just had, uh, concussions from, from the, uh, the blast, uh, of the event. And so then we, we had to take another pause uh, in our clearance operations and, and work another evacuation, uh, with our first platoon this time. Um, so we had the platoon leader who, uh, you know, had, had an amputated leg. Uh, the, the platoon sergeant was, uh, was, was pretty messed up. He refused to, um, get on the aircraft and, and wanted to stay, you know, hindsight, he, he should have been another one that should have, uh, gotten on the aircraft, but, but stuck around. Um, and so, you know, we, we ended up clearing the rest of that village. We moved to another village cluster, uh, safely cleared that. And then kind of at that point, we, we had cleared a bed down location for the night that was large enough to facilitate what was left of our, uh, left of our force, uh, to establish security for the evening and then kind of plan what the, what the follow on clearance was going to look like the following day. Um, and about what time was that, that you, that you started to bed down? So it was before dark. Um, it was, it was probably, uh, I'd say somewhere between, uh, you know, six and seven o'clock when, when we started occupying it, clearing it to make sure there wasn't another, you know, pressure plate waiting for, for anybody like in the courtyard or in a doorway. Uh, and then started working establishment of security before it got dark. So then what was the plan for the next day? So the plan for the next day um, was uh, we were going to clear a couple more village clusters. Um, so, you know, the, the kind of uh, you know, feeling that night, you know, I climbed up on, on the roof of uh, one of the um, Afghan 
uh, mud huts, the, the, the homes they live in, and uh, made a radio call. And, um, you know, when we, when we started out, uh, we had over 100 people out on the operation. And as I was calling up things that night, uh, our, our roll-up for, for the day um, for specifically accountability, um, I, I had about 27 less people on the ground, um, that I, than I had the day prior. And so, um, we, we had to take a a little bit of an appetite suppressant in what we were going to be capable of doing the following day. Uh, but, but the plan was we were going to, we were going to move to the next village and clear one and maybe two more and then work, work a link up with our Charlie company to our North. Okay. So, the next day gets up, you guys get started early, uh, presumably. And what are you expecting? Are you expecting sort of more of the same, you know, an IED threat certainly, and 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 a very real and severe IED threat as as you've you know experienced tragically during the first day, um, but maybe not a lot of people. So I, you know, at that point, our presence was well known in the area. So. Um, unless the enemy wanted to try to initiate combat uh, contact that day, I, I didn't expect um, to actually face, uh, you know, a, a direct fire engagement um, unless it was a purposeful ambush that would likely draw us into another IED that they had planted for us. And that if, you know, you describe this, this entire mission as sort of in the context of this fair fight in terms of evenly matched weaponry and things, um, that almost you know, tips the balance even more a little bit in their favor that they now have the element of surprise and control over whether or not there's going to be an engagement. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, while we did have, you know, you could say we had air superiority, um, we didn't have that many resources to really use that superiority to, to our advantage to see that movement from the sky if, if it was actually to come. Um, so there was still a level of uncertainty uh, of, of what we were going to face the next morning when we stepped off. And, and what did you, what did you find? So, you know, the, the mental preparation of going into the second day was, was pretty tough. Um, you know, I, I know as, as this being a, a spear podcast, um, I had two roommates in Alaska when I was a Lieutenant, both of them were class of 2004. Uh, one was, um, Paul Pena who uh, died in uh, Argandab, uh, just northeast of, of Zari, uh, in January of 2010. And then in, um, in, in uh, July of 2010, my other roommate, Jason Holbrook, who had moved on to uh, 3rd Special Forces Group, also hit an IED in Cockrez, just north of Zari. And, um, and so as I, I'm going into this 2012 de- deployment, I find out I'm going to Kandahar, I'm going to a district that touches both of the districts that I had lost my roommates, uh, from when I was a Lieutenant. And, um, you know, there were, there was certainly a, a little bit of that playing out in the back of my mind as we were first going on this operation. Um, but, but certainly the second day as we were stepping off and, yeah. and, um, so as we, as we moved out, uh, our, our initial movement was, uh, rather uneventful and, um, the, the, Charlie Company element um, was was pretty close to us to our north, and as we moved up to start clearing the third village cluster, 
uh, of this operation. Um, you know, we kind of did the, the kind of typical, um, uh, you know, hit, hit a, uh, hit a choke point and, and, um, you know, divided the force into, you know, that kind of classic 90 degree, um, you know, 90 degree L shape, uh, one, one side was, uh, was kicking South to, to set up the, uh, overwatch position and the other folks were pushing a little bit further East. And, uh, and, and we were, we were going to take that, that element and start working clearance, um, of, of the third village. And as we were, as we were dividing the force again to, uh, set up overwatch and initiate movement on that small village, we, uh, we actually, um, we didn't hit, we found, uh, two IEDs, one in each element. So as we, as we were, as we were moving, uh, both elements to, to get established for the clearance, um, the overwatch element, I think actually found two IEDs. And then, uh, the other element that I was with the, the clearance element found a, a third IED. And so at that point we, uh, we had to then clear those again. And, you know, as I was calling this up to our battalion headquarters and said, Hey, we, you know, we found uh, additional IEDs in the area. Um, you know, our, our our chain of command at the battalion and brigade level, you know, kind of made the decision to say, "Hey, this is um, the the threat, uh, the value of the uh, you know continuing to press, and the likelihood of us um, hitting another IED was pretty high." And at that point, um, we actually made the decision to abort the rest of the clearance and the, the mission then just became make a safe link up with Charlie company to the North. Was that a difficult decision to make? Um, well, I'll be honest with you, John, at, at the time it was, it was, uh, a little bit of a sense of relief. Oh. Um, you know, just because of the casualties we had taken the, the drain that had taken on, on people, um, you know, both, both physically and mentally. And, um, you know, certainly, um, th there probably was not a lot of people whose, uh, whose, whose thoughts were, um, man, I wish we could just keep pressing right now, you know? Um, so, uh, I, I would say overall, it was probably a sense of relief that, that we kind of, um, decided to, to call it quits for the day and just work link up with, uh, with Charlie company. And was that going to be a challenge in and of itself, or was that pretty straightforward now that you decided to, to essentially call off the, the rest of the clearance? So we still had to move through uncleared uh, area. Um, Charlie Company had a, uh, a, a bulldozer um, that was uh, pretty safe, even if it hit an IED. Um, and, and so what they did was they were actually in the process of con constructing a checkpoint that was uh, almost just due north of where we were. And so they, they sent the dozer down through, um, it was actually, you know, of course that area, uh, that was controlled by the, the Taliban, they, they were growing poppies. So a lot of the fields that we were actually maneuvering through, uh, at the time were, were filled with poppy plants and, uh, for the opium. And, uh, and so they, they sent a bulldozer down, actually cleared a path for us, made link up with us, uh, with the bulldozer. And then we followed the bulldozer essentially back to the checkpoint where we, uh, changed our HLZs for the evening and then, uh, worked, um, worked getting picked up from there on our helicopter. And so then that evening you headed back to your cop. Yes, that's correct. Yeah. The, uh, the HLZ, we, ch we changed to just, uh, just next to, 
um, and within uh, Overwatch range of the checkpoint that Charlie Company was working on, and uh, and then we we got picked up by the by the Chinooks that that brought us in and and uh, flew us back to our cop. What were you feeling then when you get back on the aircraft and you realize okay this this operation is over? Um, well, you know what what's kind of going through your head and what are you trying to process? Um, yeah, I mean a, a number of feelings. I mean, um, I, I I would say that the um, grief of the loss of the paratroopers had not yet set in. Um, you know, I think that that would come later. Uh, I think more uh, relief that the mission was over. Um, you know, sad for um, the, the guys specifically that I knew were close friends with uh, the, the the paratroopers. That both both. Um, the 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 one that we knew had been killed uh the 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 other that um sam that we knew was in really bad shape uh as well as you know um lieutenant albano who who had been pretty pretty uh significantly wounded to to lose his leg and and so um you know again the 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 going into the the fair fight um but then you know suffering a tactical defeat um, in, in the GWAT, uh, is not, I think, a, a, a story that very many people, uh, either will tell or want to tell. Um, but, uh, certain, I don't, I don't think we, we like to admit that, uh, sometimes we were wrong or sometimes we lose, but, yeah. um, certainly that day we, we did not have, uh, success on that operation, you know, and, and over the course of the, the, the four deployments, um, you know, certainly not at that point in my career, uh, you know, as a, as a young lieutenant, you kind of feel like, Hey, that, you know, when bad stuff happens, it happens to other people. It's not going to happen to me. You kind of still have that, uh, kind of feeling of being, being Superman or, or whatever. Um, and, and I had been humbled before, uh, that, that trip, um, specifically the Moscow that we took, uh, that I was talking about, um, you know, just four kilometers away in 2009, um, you know, but uh, certainly I'd been on a number of operations where it's, you know, hey, you got the guy you're looking for, number of enemy killed, kind of the typical roll up, um, you know, walking off the back of the helicopter, kind of high fiving guys on, you know, patting them on the back for another successful operation. And that was certainly not the case as we were getting on the aircraft and flying back to the cop uh, you know, the night of the 26th of April. Was it, um, was it frustrating, uh, to not have had, you know, a more direct engagement? So I, I think, you know, that is, that is one of the challenges of, of, uh, you know, that, that kind of counterinsurgency, counterterrorism fight that, that we were involved in. Uh, you know, when you're doing stability operations, I, I had a counterinsurgency instructor at West Point, um, Major Dean Newman, uh, who, who said that, uh, you know, coin is, uh, coin is 10% combat and 90% everything else. And while the 90% everything else is important, you should never lose that 10%. Um, because a lot of it starts with the ability to provide security that then everything else kind of emanates from. And, uh, you know, it's, it's frustrating when you're kind of chasing those goats in that fight and you're, you're finding yourself in situations where, you know, you're, 
your your men are stepping on pressure plates they're they're dying or losing limbs and there's no one to take out that aggression on there's there's no one to focus that violence against uh in response to the violence that's been afflicted uh upon your formation um so you know it was it was absolutely both a frustrating and helpless feeling uh walking away from that operation um and it's you know it's not about body counts it's about the impact that you can have uh, against the enemy and their networks that would disrupt uh, operations and would disrupt their activity of you know inflicted a, a, on your your fellow soldiers and paratroopers to your left and to your right specifically it was our charlie company that had uh, been hit pretty hard specifically by the recoilless rifle that had been moving around the area that um, you know, had almost killed a number of uh, our guys in, in that area to include our command sergeant major at the time. Um, and, and so uh, for uh, that, Charlie Company had lost their, their first sergeant to, to uh, um, an engagement. So he was, uh, he was severely wounded and was out of the fight and back home. Um, and then uh, just just to add a, one additional layer, John, to this to, to this uh, this story, yeah. um, because we always talk about the warfighter, um, and you know we, we talk about those at the tip of the spear uh, in podcasts like this. Um, but my wife and I, we were dual military, and she was in the same brigade as I was. She was actually on rear rear detachment, and she was responsible as the rear DXO for the brigade of tracking all of the casualties. Um, and, and, and taking care of the gold star families, arranging the memorial ceremonies, understanding where, um, we had, we lost, uh, 20, I believe it was 24, uh, soldiers to include our attached battalions in our brigade. And we had over 70 amputees on that deployment. And, and so the toll that that takes on, on the families and on the rear detachment and the people that are supporting the warfighter. Um, you know, I, I knew the ramifications of that and, and the impacts and the reverberations that this operation, uh, as we were returning was going to have not only on the people that were a part of it, um, but on the families and, and, and on the loved ones of, of those that had been killed and wounded. And that weighed yeah. really heavily on me. Um, that's a great point. And it's something that, um, has been, has sort of, um, been floating in the background of, of a number of episodes that we have, uh, that, that, that we've had, had the, you know, good fortune to record and to capture these stories. Um, but I don't think anybody's actually sort of identified it and put it front and center. And it's a, it's a really important point that I hope, I hope, um, helps listeners sort of appreciate a little bit. Um, I guess we'll kind of maybe wrap up just with, with one final question and that's, um, given, you know, you mentioned that you had been sort of, I think you used the word humbled before during a 2009 deployment in the same area. Um, and that, it, that's a real thing. Humility, you know, caused by, um, your experiences in combat is a real thing. And I don't mean necessarily you individually, but sort of for a unit, um, did that raise any challenges in terms of keeping morale up and keeping, uh, focus, uh, on the objectives at hand on the mission, uh, say in the immediate aftermath of this two day operation? Yeah, John, you know, absolutely. There was certainly some challenges coming out of that, that operation. Um, you know, just 
you can't really say aside from the grieving because the grieving of the loss of the paratroopers was something that was certainly front and center for uh, our guys, especially as, you know, Sam was evacuated back home and then succumbed to his wounds, you know, about three and a half weeks later. Um, and, and, and guys were, you know, kind of in the, 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 the traumatic brain injury ward and working on recovery. And so some of them actually would return to us eventually and kind of get back into the fight after the, the, kind of nascent concussion protocol that we were, were using back then. And, um, but, but the, the additional layer and challenge of, of that operation was, uh, was really with the partners because the partners quit. And, um, we, we felt like at the time we had invested a a decent amount of time in, in relationships with, uh, specifically the Afghan national army that went out on the operation with us. And, um, you know, different than some of the, uh, different than some of the, uh, deployments that I had done previously, uh, specifically in soft, um, we weren't picking our partner. Our partner was the ones that, you know, kind of showed up based on the nature of who, who the Afghan chain of command was placing in the area. And so you were doing the best you could with the partners that you were given, and uh, it, it took a, a decent amount of time to kind of recover from that operation, specifically with the Afghan National Army, because they lived with us in our COP. And so we were still interacting with them day to day. And then, uh, you know, still trying to uh, keep, the, keep the, the paratroopers in my company focused on the mission and not try to, you know, take out maybe some of that, um, ill will towards the partners against the, the Afghan national police. And then the, the local police that we were working on training up and establishing in that area, uh, to, to try to further the security gains that we had in sector, uh, of our company area, which was largely pacified, uh, at that point in, in, um, uh, in our deployment. Yeah. You know, it's, um, that's also something that has, has, um, you know, it's just a fact. It has come up in a number of the episodes that we've um, that we have recorded, specifically in Afghanistan, kind of in that period when we were relying on them more and more on these partners, but they clearly um, weren't ready. And on one hand, you know, you want to be careful not to paint with too broad a brush because there were clearly some very capable, committed, dedicated, disciplined um, service Absolutely. members in in the ANA, but it was. It was also it was a challenge. It was a challenge for U.S. units that were partnered with him because they didn't always stick around when mm-hmm. it got tough, um, and that adds another layer. Not only because it makes your mission more difficult that day, but you got to rebuild that relationship, um, you know, over the over the duration of your deployment. And I imagine that was that was not an easy task. No, not not at all. It was it was uh, it was certainly a challenge, um, but you know our our. Uh, I feel like our company, uh, our company handled it with, uh, with great maturity moving forward. Uh, we knew we still had a mission to do. Um, and, and the, the, um, the paratroopers in, in the, in the company stayed focused on that. And, um, you know, it was, we, we, we certainly continued to take some lumps, uh, during the rest of that deployment. But, uh, I, I think, uh, you know, largely again, the, uh, the, to, to much is given, much is expected. And so those additional resources that took us out of sector, um, the proponent of the casualties, I think we, we ended up with, uh, 
I think 24 or 25 Purple Hearts in my company. Most of them were out of sector operations that that wound us in situations where we had uh, we had casualties aside from the blue on green incident that I that I touched on earlier. Wow. Um, but uh, yeah, that was that was certainly uh, a, a tough part of that deployment um, where you're you're in kind of that persistent stability operations coin environment and and you're working with partners that uh, you didn't you didn't choose. Um, but, uh, but they're the ones that you've got and, and you try to train them and, uh, and mentor them best you can in that situation. Yeah. Well, Mike, thank you so much for, um, you know, again, for taking some time out of your schedule and, and, and sharing your story and spending some time, uh, uh, talking to us on, on the spear. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks, Sean. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for listening to this episode of the spear. The Spear is produced by the Modern War Institute at West Point. What you hear in each episode are the views of the participants and don't represent the position of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. Be sure you're subscribed to The Spear on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app, where you can also give the podcast a rating or leave a review, which helps us reach new listeners. And if you aren't yet following MWI on social media, please find us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Thanks again for listening.